We're live. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Brian, as I think you're probably aware, is with the team in Guatemala. Did everyone get the update this morning? They arrived safe and sound at the home at one o'clock this morning or something. So they had a long day yesterday. And so Brian is away, and so he asked me to, to fill in. I think, it was, uh, I think it was somewhat providential because of, the, uh, because of where we're at in 1 Corinthians. Did you get my email from a week or two ago explaining what we're going to do and maybe why? And you probably, the first thing you did was read ahead and think, ooh, what's coming? Um, well, we're there. And uh, yeah, I think it's providential. I, I was having a hard time envisioning preaching on these verses during the worship hour, given the, the audience, and so I think it's entirely appropriate that we're able to deal with these verses in this sort of a context, and then parents can use their wisdom as to what they want to share, if anything, with their, with their young ones. So we're going to look at the first six verses of 1 Corinthians 7, and then in worship, back to chapter 7. But we're going to jump into the middle of the chapter. I'll explain why in just a few moments. But let's bow our heads. Let's pause and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together. Our Heavenly Father, we do a delight in you. You are a God who is boundless in goodness and grace and mercy. Boundless in faithfulness and righteousness and power and wisdom. And so we do ascribe to you all glory and majesty and honor this day. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. We thank you for that love that you have poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And we pray that we might rejoice in the triune God this day as we study your word, as we fellowship one with another, as we sing praises to you. And we pray that with all this, you might be well pleased, that it might be for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Did you get a handout? They're over there beside Arthur. There are a few left if you did not get one. Help yourself. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We have entitled this series, True Spirituality. Um, You may recall, you may not recall... I hope you recall, if you don't recall, you've been living in the woods somewhere, that this is the outline, or you're just visiting, and next case, excuse me, pardon me, but I've shown this I don't know how many times now in morning worship, more than I can recall. That's the basic outline of 1 Corinthians that we're following. You've got an introduction, first nine verses of chapter one, you have a conclusion, all of chapter 16 And in between, what do we have? Firstly, first major section, Paul's response to a report. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. Quickly, quickly. Chapter 1, verse 11. For it has been reported to me. It has been reported to me. It has reached my ears. It's been brought to my attention. And so Paul responds to that report from verse 10 all the way through to the end of chapter 6. And then a response to a letter. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And that response takes up the rest of the book all the way through to the end of chapter 15. So what's in his response to this report that he has heard? He addresses four disturbing problems. That's where we're at. We've covered all of that now in our study of 1 Corinthians. Some of you are staring at me in disbelief. No, we really have. We've covered all of that. That's, we've been there, done that. That's water under the bridge. He addresses these four disturbing problems. Quarreling. That was a big section. We were there for quite a while. Boasting, defrauding, and sinning. His response to the report which he had heard. Then his response to the letter that he received. And here he addresses five perplexing issues. There they are. Marriage, culture, worship, spirituality, 
and the resurrection. So is everyone clear on where we are at? We're done with the first six chapters. We're done with his response to the report. And now we're entering this second major section, his response to a letter. And we are picking it up today with chapter 7. Yes, I want to begin by reading it in its entirety. This is a fascinating chapter. It is a somewhat perplexing, troubling chapter. And it raises oodles of questions. All right, you like that word, oodles? I just thought it was appropriate. Lots of questions, tons of questions. And uh, oh, my prayer is that we answer them all by the time we're finished with this chapter, sometime in January, because um, he covers so much ground here. And so listen to what Paul says. Listen to the word of God, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband. How do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. 
And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Any questions? <laughs> Any questions? Feel free to email one of the elders. <laughs> Quite the chapter, isn't it? Marvelous. A little confusing here and there. And uh, more than confusing here and there. And my prayer is by the time we're finished with this chapter, the middle of January, you'll think to yourself, hmm, no big deal. And we'll be able to move right on to chapter eight. That's my goal. I got a big lofty goal. Place to begin. We're going to look at the first six verses, but it's not the place to begin. The place to begin is the middle of the chapter. It is the key that unlocks the whole. And if you get the middle of the chapter, you have the key that will unlock its individual parts, whereby we can make sense of the individual parts. So I'm really going to expound on those middle verses later in worship. Let me just draw your attention to them now briefly. So you're going to get a double dose. It's just how lucky you are this morning or blessed you are a double dose. I'm referring to verses 17 through 24, the middle of the letter. Let me repeat it. These verses constitute the key. All right. We want to get our minds around the whole chapter. We want to be able to trace his thinking, the progression of his thought. These verses are pivotal. Notice, firstly, just briefly, their structure. All right? The structure isn't that difficult. There is a command in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. There's the command. You are to remain in the condition in which you were converted. That's what he says, folks. Whatever your condition, we're not defining that right now. We're just hearing the command. Whatever condition you were in, when God called you, converted you, that is the condition you are to remain in. That's the command. He gives an illustration of the command in verses 18 and 19. The illustration is circumcision. He then repeats the command in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. That's him repeating the command, which he initially gave in verse 17, repeating it in verse 20. And then in verses 21 through 23, he gives a second illustration. The first, circumcision, uncircumcision, Jew, Gentile, ethnic distinction, right? A sociological category. Now he gives a second illustration, which is what? Slavery, freedman, an illustration. And then in verse 24, he repeats the command. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So command, 
Illustration, command, illustration, command. You getting it? I'm going to unpack that later in worship. For now, I just want you to notice that's, that's the structure. What's the message? You've got it right there in the command. Paul's message is simply this. You think of when God called you. Think of when God converted you. When he did that, he placed you in Christ. And your identity in Christ now is everything. And you are to remain in that condition, that life to which he assigned you, that life to which he called you. You are now to live out your identity in that life, in that condition, in that context. Why is he giving them this message? Why is he insisting on this? Well, as you read the letter in its entirety, you discover that the Corinthians are struggling with what? They think there is such a thing as super spirituality. And they think it is determined by their status in life. And they think there are certain things which are impediment to true godliness. An obstacle to true spirituality. And one of these things is their marital status. And so Paul takes this message, this command, look, when God saved you, you were made one with Christ. You are now to live out that identity in whatever condition that is. Your identity in Christ is not determined by your condition or status in life. Your walk with God is not determined by your status or condition in life. Your godliness, your holiness, your pursuit of greater spirituality, it is not determined by your call, condition, or status in life. You've got everything you need because you're one with Christ. And now what you're to do is live that out in whatever place God has put you. Making sense. He applies it in chapter 7 to marriage. And he applies it specifically to five categories. Are you ready for these? This is the chapter. Category number one, which we're about to look at in a few moments. The first six, seven verses. Those who are married, but think they should be celibate. I'm married, but I want to be spiritual. I'm married, but I want to grow in godliness. And I think intimacy is an impediment to my spirituality. Hence, I think celibacy is a good thing. That's the first group. The second group, verses 8 and 9, those who are widowed and aren't sure if they should remarry. The third group, verses 10 and 11, those who are married to a believer and are considering divorce. Why would they be considering divorce? Well, I can serve God better if I were single. It's a higher life. It's a more spiritual life if I were on my own and not married. Verses 12 through 16, the fourth category, those who are married to an unbeliever and are considering divorce because an unbeliever might hold me back. An unbeliever might be a tremendous obstacle to me progressing in my relationship with the Lord. And then the fifth category, it's a long one from verses 25 through 40. Those who are considering marriage despite the present Distress. Five categories to which he applies verses 17 through 24. And this command, which is central to it all, you remain in the condition in which you were called. You got it? That's it. That's the chapter unlocked. What it is he's doing here. What it is he's trying to accomplish. And it is required. It is absolutely essential. Why? Because the Corinthian church has an absolutely skewed, twisted notion of spirituality. They think it is something divorced from regular life. They think it's something detached from the mundane trivialities of everyday life. They think it is something to arise to or to attain to and that there are conditions and status in life that are holding them back. And one of these surrounds marriage. And there are those who think, well, no, to be spiritual, I need to be celibate. To grow in godliness, I need to be married. Well, to really advance in spirituality, I need to be single. And this is their thinking. They are equating 
spirituality with their marital status or condition, their views on the marriage bed. And Paul is just, if you like, parachuting down into the middle of it all. He says, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. No, there is no higher spiritual life. You are who you are. And you have been assigned and called to live life here on the earth. And you are who you are. Your job is your job. Your marital status is your marital status. All these good gifts of creation God has given to you. And the point isn't to detach yourself from these things that you might increase in your identity in Christ. No, you are one with Christ. And now what you're to do is live that out in the condition you are in. That's your calling. And that is true spirituality. All right? I think we can actually just skip right on to chapter 8 then. That's it. That's all that's going on in chapter 7. Now, obviously, there are a number of questions still and nagging issues and problems, and I pray we will come to all of these in sequence. But for the moment then, we're going to hone in on the first category. It's verses 1 through 6, 1 through 7. Let me read these verses again for you. Here, Paul is applying those verses 17 through 24 to this particular individual or group of individuals, those who are married but think they should be celibate. Verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, this is their opinion in quotation marks. This isn't Paul, this is them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what you've written. That's what some of you are thinking. Verse 2, his response, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And whatever that gift is, whatever that calling is, whatever that condition in life is, live it out and express your identity in Christ. And that is the path to true godliness. And so this is a church divided, isn't it? You go back into chapter six, right at the end, and some in the church are struggling with what? Sexual immorality, hedonism. And now we head into the next chapter and immediately we're introduced to this other group. They're at the opposite end of the spectrum. They're not dealing with hedonism. What are they struggling with? Asceticism. So you've got these two extremes. On the one, there's hedonist, the self-indulgent hedonist. The stomach, right, is for the, the stomach is for food. The food is for stomach. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. The soul is all that matters. There he is over there. And then over here, you've got this individual, no, 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 no. It really does matter that I need to deprive myself of natural delights in order to advance in godliness. And both of these ideas come from what is known as Structure, theme, application, we've covered that. Dualism. I have gone down this road with you how many times? Twelve? I think more than that. I think you've forgotten. We've been down this road so many times. And yet it is a worldview that is persistent. And it plagues us. Dualism coming from the philosopher Plato, a platonic worldview, basically espouses what? There are two realms. This is a simplification. I make no apologies for it, but it's all we need to get. There are two realms. There is a spiritual realm and there is what? A physical realm. The spiritual realm is better than the physical realm. The spiritual realm is superior to the physical realm. The spiritual realm is the ideal. The spiritual realm is the perfect. The spiritual realm is the unchangeable, whereas the material realm is corruptible. You got it? There are two realms. 
That's dualism. In a dualistic worldview, the central question is this. Where do you fit in these two realms? You're stuck in the middle because you have a spirit, which is one ontologically in terms of your being with the spirit world. And you have a, a body and part of that body, mind and senses. And it is stuck in the material world. All right. Do you understand that? If I think that way as a Christian, I am going to go in one of two directions. I'm going, to include, I'm going to conclude either this or this. On the one hand, I might very well conclude, well, if that is true, that if I'm basically dualistic, I've got this spirit and then I have this body and my spirit belongs to this perfect, eternal, unchangeable realm, but my body belongs to all that is despicable and innately evil, this less than ideal physical realm. Well, then you know what? It doesn't really matter what I do with my body. It's part of this realm. It's going to be destroyed anyway. I can indulge, do whatever I want. I can live a hedonistic lifestyle. It makes no difference. All that matters is the spiritual part of me. Does that sound familiar? We've got a ton of young people running around in our day who think precisely that. I can do whatever I want. I can indulge whatever I want as long as I sincerely love God with my spirit. That is dualism. And it is not biblical. That's hedonism. Over here, some, from a dualistic vantage point, because they have imbibed this philosophy, this worldview, they think to themselves, yes, my spirit, part of that spiritual realm, I have this connection with God and it's wonderful, but then my body gets in the way. My mind gets in the way. Senses get in the way. Life get in the way. My wife gets in the way. My job gets in the way. This world gets in the way. And so what do they adopt? asceticism in order to have greater communion with God, in order to be closer, in order to be really spiritual, well, then I shouldn't be doing that job. I, I maybe should, I shouldn't even be married. I certainly shouldn't be celebrating the marriage bed. I should be depriving myself of this, depriving myself of that. And this life just becomes a chore. It becomes a ball and chain because it's impediment to releasing me for communion with God. It is asceticism. Sound familiar? There are millions of ascetics walking the face of the earth today within Christian circles. Are you getting it? A dualistic worldview that leads to these two extremes of hedonism and asceticism. There's our worldview if we're biblical. We are not dualists. We're not although we act like it oftentimes, we are not dualists. We agree there are two realms. There are two realms. Realm number one is occupied by the uncreated infinite God triune. That's realm number one. Realm number two is absolutely everything else. That's it. Realm number two, what's in realm number two? Us, both body and soul. We're not, we don't have this inherent connection to the spiritual world or this part of us that is inherently good, the spirit part versus the material or the physical part. No, we are body and soul. Yes, we adhere to a bipartite view of humanity, but we are part of the created finite order. And we're dependent upon what? The revelation of God as culminating in the incarnation of Christ. And we believe as Christians that God through Christ has done what? He has redeemed us, all of us, body and soul. And as Christians, we believe it was God in the first place who created everything outside of himself, this second realm in which absolutely everything else exists. He created it all and he declared what? About eight times in Genesis 1. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Finally, in verse 31, he shakes it up a little bit. And what does he say? It is very good. It's all good. And yes, the fall happens. 
And as a result of the fall, the consequences are horrible, but God has redeemed us body and soul and he is redeeming this creation. Therefore, we reject these two tendencies, which are extremely prevalent in the church at Corinth, still very prevalent today, whereby people gravitate to one of these two extremes of asceticism or hedonism. In our context, it is now asceticism. And Paul addresses it beginning in verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He now has to address this and he does. But just, just before we get there, just flip over for a moment. I think I have a couple of slides on this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I do. Flip over to first Timothy chapter four, just before we get to the nitty gritty of chapter seven and what Paul says there, because in first Timothy chapter four, I think we have the clearest, most concise statement from the pen of the apostle Paul when it comes to dualism and understanding our relationship with the created order. So I think it's worth just reading these verses together. First Timothy chapter four, verse one. Now the spirit expressly says, that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. What is that? It's asceticism. It's an expression of an ascetic spirit. Abstinence from foods. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Just briefly, because our time is running away. Just, just quickly, a couple of slides then. Do I dare say without any comment? Yeah, without much comment. Uh, he makes that point in those verses, doesn't he? Everything created by God is good. You have that in verse, that's his opening statement in verse four, is it not? For everything created by God is good. Uh, all of creation. And then the second thing I want you to notice is this. Everything created by God, he says in the rest of verse four, is to be received. Nothing is to be rejected. If it is received, he, now notice he qualifies his statement. How are we to receive it? Firstly, we receive it, faith and a knowledge of the truth. He says that back in verse three, God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, these good gifts are for whom? For Christians. I think I said this last Sunday from the pulpit. We do realize unbelievers are thieves, right? Everything they enjoy, the water they drink, the food they eat, the marital bed, everything in life. They're actually stealing. They have no right to it. You realize that, right? It's all been redeemed, created by God, redeemed in Christ, and is for his people, those who are in Christ, who is head of all things, heir of all things. Therefore, we are what? Co-heirs with Christ, heir of all things. We alone are the ones who actually have the right to God's good gifts, to receive them in and through Christ Jesus. Secondly, we receive them, by the word of God and prayer. These are the means by which they are sanctified, set apart to God's honor, God's glory. And thirdly, we receive them with thanksgiving because we can easily abuse God's good gifts, food, drink, recreation, sleep, the marital bed. Thanksgiving prevents abuse. Thanksgiving prevents abuse. It means we use God's good gifts sacredly. We acknowledge that they come from God. We use them soberly. We don't turn them into idols and we use them sensibly. 
We don't make them more important than the soul. They are important, but not more important than the soul. So there's Paul's thoughts on dualism and how he basically sweeps away that entire worldview in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now come back with me to 1 Corinthians 7, in which he's now addressing one thing in particular, this element, this group, this contingent within the church at Corinth that has arrived at this conclusion, hey, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, if you want to be godly, if you want to be holy, if you want to be spiritual, then the celibate life is for you. What does Paul say? But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman let her have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Don't be a celibate, is what he's saying there. Except perhaps. There's some doubt in his mind here. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Maybe that's a possible occasion when you might deprive one another, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, I think he's referring to what he just said in verse five, as a concession, not a command, I say this. It's a concession. It's actually not my preference that you do such a thing. Seventh verse, I wish that all were as I myself am. I am single, I am celibate, and I think it's great, I think it's wonderful. And yeah, I wish... Others were like me. That's fine. But each has his own gift from God. Gift of singlehood. God's given me that, says Paul. And it's wonderful. And I wish more were like me. But uh, each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, singlehood. One of another, the married life. Whatever your gift is, receive it with thanksgiving and celebrate it. But this idea, well, a married couple. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That just does not make any sense at all. That's Paul's point. Let me draw out four observations. Here is the first when it comes to this relationship between husband and wife. The emphasis on exclusivity. We should have, he says in verse 2, our own spouse. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is not saying that everyone should get married. That's not his point, obviously. He isn't saying that everyone needs to be married. No, some have the gift of singleness, singlehood. His point is this, that marriage is good. And that within the context of marriage, a husband must cling, hold fast to his wife. It's the marriage bed. And a wife must hold fast to her husband. It's exclusivity. We should have our own spouse. Second observation is this, responsibility. Verse three, we should give our spouse his, her conjugal rights. That's, I'm just lifting that right out of the verse. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. What does he mean by employing this idea of rights? Marriage is a covenant, and within the covenant, we contract, we enter into a contract, we are promising to fulfill certain roles and duties and responsibilities, and one of these duties, roles, responsibilities is to engage in the marital bed. And Paul's point is simply this, to refrain is a breach, it is a violation of the covenant of marriage. We glorify God with our bodies by enjoying the marital bed in the context of the marital relationship. Paul's no ascetic, is he? He's single, and it's the gift God has given him, but he is no ascetic. And this idea, gaining traction in the church at Corinth, that somehow this is icky or this is sinful this is bad this isn't good if i really want to be spiritual then i need to go in this direction uh, paul's point is simply that you are unbelievably confused and sorely mistaken the third observation the first was exclusivity 
The second, responsibility. The third, authority. We should recognize that our body belongs to our spouse. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. When Paul speaks of the body here, he is still referring to the marriage bed. The husband's body belongs to his wife, and the wife's body belongs to her husband. They become, therefore, one flesh by virtue of this act, the marriage bed. A few comments here. I've written them down to make sure I do not forget to state them because this verse can be quickly abused. Paul, when he speaks here of authority and what is implied, this idea of ownership, obviously he is arguing for the fact that this authority in the context of marriage, a husband over his wife, a wife over her husband, uh, this is to be exercised in love and affection and compassion and respect. Uh, If this is wrongly understood and wrongly applied, the result will be something downright ugly. It really will. Uh, and, and unbiblical at its core. It will lead to a host of problems, abuse and exploitation. Now, as Paul utters this command in verse 4, the emphasis is on giving. We interpret it, we apply it, for example, of what he says in Romans twelve ten. He calls us to outdo one another in showing honor. And so we outdo one another, a husband outdoes his wife, a wife outdoes her husband in showing honor to the other one in exercising this covenantal marital right to her body on her part to his body and the enjoyment of the marital bed. The question in applying this verse isn't what we get, but what we give, but what we give. The fourth observation from the text I just have to say now, you know why I'm not doing this in worship, right? I mean, this, it, it is amazing. It is quite amazing. And it actually speaks volumes to us. The way Paul addresses this subject and what he is willing to say, the issues he is, aw- he is willing to take on and, um, and how he is, there is on his part no hesitancy in affirming God's design for a beautiful institution and affirming God's design for the marital bed. Yes, not appropriate for all ages, but certainly appropriate for us to hear this, especially in a sex-deranged and sex-obsessed society. Not to run in the opposite direction, but to engage these things in conversation and look what Scripture has to say about these things And putting them always in that greater context of God declaring what is good in his sight and what is for his glory, ultimately. Here's the fourth, mutuality. We should not deprive our spouse. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. He's still referring to the marital bed, the coming together of husband and wife. Don't do it. Do not deprive one another. Now, the language is very interesting. You really get it in the Greek. You get it in the English here as well. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps. He's uneasy with what he's about to say. Except perhaps. I I could see this maybe situation in life, circumstances of life, that you've set apart this this time for for prayer and fasting. I don't know. Maybe in that context it would be appropriate. Um, You know, my, my command is you do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So it's an exception, a maybe this exception, definitely for a limited period of time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, sense of urgency, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is a concession, Paul says in verse six. What he's just said in verse five, this is a concession. It's not a command. It's not a command. I don't even really think this is a good idea. I could see maybe circumstances, situations that might arise that call for it. Fine, fine. 
Um, okay, but um, this is not to be for a prolonged, protracted period of time because if it is, you, you're a sitting duck and uh, you are opening yourself up for attack. Satan may very well come and tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Then he brings it all to a conclusion, really, in verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. I'm single. I'm a celibate. Yeah. Uh, but it's a gift. It's what God has called me to. Each has his own gift. That's what he called me to. Uh, from God. Uh, one of one kind. That's my kind. One of another. For those who are married, that's your kind. It's a gift. That's what God has called you to. And you're to remain with God in that call. And you're to seek to glorify God and live out your identity in Christ in that call. Now, verses 17 through 24, making sense? Remain in the call, in the condition in which you were converted. Remain in the condition in which you were converted. Remain in the condition, that condition in life in which God called you when you were saved. Because that is when God placed you in Christ. And what it means to be spiritual now is to live out your identity in Christ, no matter your condition. This idea that celibacy somehow will help improve your status in Christ or make you godlier or holier or more exceptional or super spiritual. No, it's gibberish. It doesn't make any sense at all. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. You stay in the condition in which you remained. You honor God in that condition. You remain with him in it. That's spirituality. That is what it is to live out your identity in Christ in a God-honoring, God-glorifying fashion. Five points of application. All right? I skimmed, I, I glanced at the notes over there, and to my horror, there were eight blanks. Um, I think I made up those notes while I was still kind of working on the application. I was really ambitious. I thought, well, I'm going to be able to get eight out of this, no problem. But five, I think five We'll do it. Five points of application I trust we take with us, walk away with. Number one, um, I don't know if this is the most important, but it's, it's certainly up there. Hear me again, please. Celibacy, for that matter, asceticism, but in our context, celib celibacy is not the path to greater spirituality. It is not the path to greater spirituality. Throughout the church's history, Many people have maintained that the marital bed, sex, was the original sin. Therefore, sex and desire are inherently evil. Sexual desire isn't evil. Sexual desire isn't demonic. Sexual desire outside of God's will is evil. Sexual desire as a gift from God is normal. God brought Adam and Eve together before the fall. He looked upon all of creation, including their relationship, their conjugal relationship, and he declared that it was very, very good. There is nothing more beautiful than the covenantal marriage relationship. We need to hear that. And we need to insist upon it in our day. Celibacy is not the path to greater spirituality. Second point of application is this. The marriage bed, and this comes out of verse 2, weakens the temptation to immorality. The marital bed, one of God, Paul says it here, the marital bed weakens the temptation to immorality. Look at what he says at the outset of verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He alludes to the same thing in verse 5 when he says we should not deprive one another. If we do, for the purpose of prayer, come together again quickly so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We can deduce from that that the marriage bed weakens the temptation to immorality. This is a call, therefore, to increased intimacy. Uh, the implication of the text, the implication of the text is that husbands and wives ought to satisfy one another sexually so that their eyes and hearts do not roam. That is the implication of the text. Three qualifying remarks. There have to be qualifiers along with that one. Here's number one. It means that attraction is important in the context of marriage. 
That is not to say we succumb to concepts of beauty and sexuality as portrayed in our culture. But it does mean we ought to look after ourselves. It does mean we ought to look after ourselves. It does mean in the context of marriage, we should be aware of the importance of mutual attraction, attraction defined by God, external and internal, which cultivates and leads to and uh, encourages the, uh, the coming together of husband and wife. Second qualifying remark is this. We don't conclude from what Paul says in this passage that sexual immorality is okay if our partner doesn't satisfy us. It pains me that I even have to say that, but I have sat across the table from individuals who have said that very thing. They have excused their sexual misconduct. They have excused their sexual immorality on the basis of the fact that their spouse no longer satisfies them, and they have appealed to this text. That is an unbelievable abuse of this text. Because the third qualifying remark is this. Marriage is infinitely more than sex. Paul would argue that vehemently and insist upon that endlessly. That the marriage relationship, the coming together of husband and wife, it is at a level... And in a way, much deeper than the marriage bed, although the marriage bed, wonderful in itself and important in the sight of God, there is something in that relationship of far greater importance than sex itself. And so to take this passage and twist it to justify sinful behavior, well, that bespeaks a man, bespeaks a woman who has wandered light years from the path whereby they would employ the word of God to justify, to give, make legitimate their own sexual depravity and immorality. But the point remains. The marriage bed, according to what Paul says here, does weaken the temptation to immorality. Third thing I want us to get is this. The God's design for the marriage bed is perfect. And it comes out in verses 3 and 4. This whole idea of conjugal rights and exercising authority over one another's body out of love and respect and compassionately. Uh, and again, always that question in terms of what can I give as opposed to what I get. Um, there is nothing as ugly and destructive as sex outside the bounds of God's design. God's design is perfect. And let me just sum it up here in four statements. Sex is good because it is God's blessing. The second is this. We must always remember sex isn't a God. It is not of infinite importance. I've sat across from individuals who have said to me, well, I need sex. No, you don't. You need food, you need drink, you need a bit of sleep, but you do not need sex as if it were a necessity of life. We do not turn it into a God. It is important in the institution of marriage, certainly given what Paul says here in these verses. We recognize its goodness, but we do not turn it into a God. Thirdly, sexual intimacy means unity. And fourthly, Sexual intimacy, and it comes out clearly in verses 3 and 4, entails safety and protection. And so the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, writes, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Here's the fourth point of application. Satan uses sexual desire to gain the advantage over God's people. You picked up on that in the fifth verse, right? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan does not create sexual desire. He twists it, distorts it, corrupts it in order to tempt us. The stronger our sexual desire, the more vulnerable we are to his devices. Satan wants to divorce sexual desire from God's plan and design. He wants to destroy its true meaning and beauty. He seeks to feed sexual desire to the swine of immorality, adultery, pornography, 
homosexuality, incest, and on and on and on it goes. When we battle with sexual temptation, we are battling with the devil himself. He tempts us. This is an area that he gives his utmost attention to. Taking something that is good, taking something that is perfectly designed by God himself, intended for our enjoyment, intended for our good, intended for his glory, and it is to twist it beyond all recognition. And so we need to understand that he is seeking to gain the advantage over us and deal with this temptation accordingly. And it better mean we know how to employ the full armory as Paul gives it to us in Ephesians chapter 6. And what it means to live out our identity in Christ and put on Christ daily that we might withstand the flaming darts of the evil one. Here's my fifth point of application to our parents. All right. All you parents out there, we need to instruct our children in these things. We need to instruct our children in these things. When should we begin to instruct our children in these things? I don't know. I think it varies child to child, home to home, obviously. But I will throw this out there. Your children in this sex-obsessed society are picking up on things long before you think they are. I will say that. It, it's just impossible that they aren't. And so you need to be aware of that and aware of what they have potentially been exposed to, potentially what they are seeing, potentially what they are hearing, and making sure they're receiving their education from you. And that you are explaining these things in the context of God's word uh, please, the instruction, and I hope, I hope I've done this today. I actually hope I've done both, but I hope I've done this. The instruction must come from the vantage point of joy, awe, wonder, appreciation, and celebration. Because for far too many of us, our instruction did not come from that vantage point. It was just all don't, 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 don't. Bad, 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 bad. Avoid, 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 avoid. And it was just negative, 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 negative. There is a place for that. But the instruction primarily with our children must come from the vantage point, as God intends, of joy, awe, wonder, appreciation, and celebration, as opposed to fear, guilt, shame, negativity, and prudishness. All right, I could, the time is gone. It's obvious why, right? If it's the latter, there are going to be problems later in life. There just are. It's unavoidable. And so we teach our children as God himself has instructed us in his word, the vantage point of joy, awe, wonder, appreciation, and celebration. As for how do we address, I was asked this recently, how do we address issues such as desire with our children, seduction, temptation, rape, Polygamy, adultery, homosexuality, and abuse. How, how, how do I even begin? And my answer is what? Read the book of Genesis. It's all there. It's all there in the book of Genesis. And all you have to do as you encounter in the book of Genesis is explain it and articulate it going all the way back to God's good design in Genesis 1 and 2 and demonstrate how this is a departure as a result of the fall of something that is good, something that is perfect in the sight of God, something that is for our good and our glory. But when we listen to the evil one and because of our own sinful hearts, this is what man will do with something that is good. And you've got it all there laid out before you in the book of Genesis. It's important to have frank discussions about these things with our children. Here's what we need to guard against. And I trust I've guarded against this this morning and demonstrated the way to speak about these things. In the language of Ephesians 5.4, we are to guard against filthiness, 
foolish talk and crude joking. That's what we must guard against. But we must not guard against having frank and open discussions about these things with our children, the up-and-coming generation, especially given what they are going to face, things we probably still can't even imagine, what they are going to face in our society, that the instruction be positive, that the instruction be celebratory, that the instruction be biblical, that the instruction be rooted in God's word, according to God's design, perfect design for us. Yes, while acknowledging the pitfalls, while acknowledging the problems, while acknowledging the distortion and how it has been twisted, but ever keeping before us that which is good, that which is a gift, and that which is ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, give us wisdom in these things. How we need it in our day. How apparent in this area more than any other area, how apparent the consequences of the fall are. And the distortion and the damage and the negative consequences, untold consequences of men and women departing and abusing your good gifts. We pray that you give us wisdom for these things. We pray that you would guard our eyes and guard our hearts. We pray that you would strengthen our marriages. And we pray that you would help us to put on the whole armor of God, that we might stand firm against the schemes of the evil one, especially in this area. And so we plead your grace. We beg for your mercy and your assistance. And we ask these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.